I made an outline that I thought might make it a little easier for you to follow. What I have to say, how close I will stick to it, depends on the passing of time. A little personal word even about the typing of the outline, I left it after preparing my message, I left it till Friday of last week, and on Thursday at five o'clock my little girl was hit by a car, and the bumper, her leg took the bumper, the impact, she was thrown and landed on the back of her head. I'm happy to report that although the leg is broken, the head is not wounded uh, severely, and instead of spending Friday on my preparation of the outline, uh, I was at her bedside and wondering even then whether I'd be able to come today. I do thank the Lord, however, that Saturday showed her well enough for me to feel I could be away for this present time. A word or two about the attempt of these past years. When I was in the seminary, the professor set forth Whitfield in a way that made me feel here was something indeed extraordinary, and yet a man of whom not enough was known. And some twenty years ago, I began to read on uh, the subject, the view to writing, and after about six months of reading, I started to write. After two months of writing, I threw it away. Uh, I started to read some more and some more. Then I learned, made contact with Mr. Murray, whom you heard last night, uh, made contact with Mr. Murray in England, and learned of much material that could be searched out over there in England and in Wales, and so went over to England. Murray and I drove through to Wales together. I'm sure he and I will never forget the happiness of that trip. Uh, we stayed in uh, Gloucester in the hotel, uh, Whitfield's uh, place of birth. We went into sections of Wales where Whitfield's great Calvinistic Methodist friend Howell Harris had been. And out of it, I gathered a good deal of factual information. And that gathering of information has been going on since I have been unearthing uh, unpublished material in the form of Whitfield's letters. I found one of his diaries existent in England, which no one has ever known. And uh, by uh, photostats, things of this kind of letters and information, I've gathered uh, a good deal of uh, factual material together. Three or four years ago, I got a 700-page manuscript over to Mr. Murray. Banner of Truth will be publishing this, and I'm very thankful for their working with me in it. I should mention Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose acquaintance I made also in England, for the interest he has shown continually in the attempt. And Mr. Murray made suggestions concerning the manuscript, and by the time I got his suggestions, a few changes, I could see a great many more myself. I started back at it to uh, move in these uh, changes here and there, interjecting them, and decided that was no way to do it. The best thing was to start all over again. For my appreciation of Whitfield had grown in the, the meantime. I can't go on forever making changes that way, however, but my appreciation of him would uh, continually grow. I can never be satisfied with what I've done. And with what I have written at present, I have with me a manuscript of about half the work, some 350 pages, with about another 350 to do, which will make 700 of a first volume, and there will be a second volume to follow after that. And I mentioned that the life itself is so great 
and an attempt to appraise, appreciate, uh, demand, I would suppose only the passing of time uh, will allow one to enter in feelingly and meaningfully uh, into this great life. I'm happy to try to talk today about his Calvinism and his evangelism. I'm sure that all of us have heard the charge that Calvinism is not evangelistic. I came across in Christianity Today a debate, Dr. Nicole had part in it in uh, 1959, I believe, when the participant said, I think every Calvinist would have to acknowledge under sober judgment that in evangelistic and missionary work, he has been far surpassed by the type of movement throughout of, uh, uh, pietism. I don't think, in the face of the historical data, that any Calvinist would suggest that in evangelism and missionary enterprise he has contributed in any real uh, degree. What I'm trying to say, said this speaker, is not that he's done nothing, but it is doubtful whether is uh, made any contribution similar to the Wesleyan movement. And I'm sure that kind of uh, statement has been heard by all of you. I'm sure also that we'll all recognize the falsity of it historically, and while that could be shown in the early church in Augustine, uh, in the Reformers, <coughs> in Spurgeon, it also can be shown in the character before us today, uh, Whitfield. First of all, his dates. As we consider his Calvinism, just to fix your attention in the historical sense, Whitfield was born in Gloucester in England, 1714. By the way, he came from a line of uh, Church of England ministers. Has not altogether been known. Uh, I can back upon at least three centuries of lifetime in the ministry by the forebears of this man. 1714, a fatherless boyhood, went to Oxford 1732, met the Wesleys, the Holy Club, conversion 1735, beginning of ministry, and I see, uh, I guess correcting your outline, mistaken the one before me, 1735 I've got for the ministry, 1737, he began his ministry, the age of 22, one of the great crises of his life, the breach with Wesley, can't overlook it at all, 1741, Whitfield's ministry through till the day of his death, 1770, 55 years of age. During these years of ministry, Whitfield was a uh, Calvinist. He didn't often use the word, yet he made no scruple about plainly stating, I am a Calvinist, staunch uh, Calvinist. These were his words. He did, however, continually speak of himself and his doctrinal position as that of the covenant of grace, the doctrines uh, of grace. Where did these views of his uh, begin? The common knowledge of Whitfield comes largely from Wesleyan sources. The books written about him, almost all done by Wesleyan men. Needless to say, we do not get a correct slant. 
And it must be said that in the Wesleyan writings on John Wesley himself, there has been a great deal of propaganda, an exaggerated uh, view provided uh, in that matter. As we come to look into Whitfield's belief, God used in the conversion of Whitfield a book, Henry Skugel, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And from that work, Whitfield learned that his own human works were utterly worthless, that there was nothing in himself that could work for or provide salvation. He learned from that book something of the sovereignty of God in salvation. He learned of the depravity of his own soul, his utter helplessness, and that there could be the very life of Almighty God placed down within him. That was what he saw. That by the grace of God was that under which God led him when in Oxford he cast his needy soul on the Lord and knew that experience of the divine life entering within him. In following months he grew in grace. He read his Greek Testament. He read his Bible. He'd be up at 4, 4.30 in the morning. The diary that I found lists his whole hours of the day. And last thing at night he would mark himself on what he had done during the day. I can't make out the marking altogether, but it looks as though he has um, uh, commendations and faults to find on what he has done during the day, but he would indicate the hours he spent in that study, on his knees. He read uh, Puritan authors. He read uh, Burkitt's commentary. He read Henry, Matthew Henry. Hours spent with his Greek New Testament while he was a boy of 20, 21, uh, his Bible, these authors spread out before him. Uh, these helped to direct his thoughts in the uh, Calvinistic way. When he was 22, he preached a sermon. This has not been included uh, among any of the printed volumes of his sermons, but he entitled it, whom he justified, then he also uh, glorified. At age of 22, in that sermon he showed justification as the work of God in a depraved human individual, and that justification led on to um, glorification. I quote one sentence. Christ has purchased for, and in due time will actually confer on, all true believers, eternal glory in the world to come. You Calvinists will see all the various truths that are included in that phrase. Whitfield's early sermons, I'm going to read a little from them a little later, uh, the early sermons showed, if not a full understanding, granted none of us had very much understanding at 22 and 23, and there was much room for him to grow in knowledge. Nevertheless, there was this movement in this direction running through the early sermons. These sermons were doctrinal sermons uh, from the uh, very first. However, when he was 24 years of age, and he launched out into the open air preaching in England, and he had the thousands coming, then he had critics in great abundance. They criticized not only the fact he preached out of doors, but mainly they criticized the doctrine that he preached. 
They didn't like his doctrine of being born again. They didn't like the declaration of justification. They criticized the possibility of assurance. And while this controversy went on with uh, the critics writing against him, and Woodfield's friends answering them and writing for him in six months of 1739, possibly 200 publications appeared in England, for and against. And while all this was going on, he went right on with his work and let the war rage. But nevertheless, this served him in making him look into his own thinking very closely. Here were the critics criticizing, scrutinizing every word, every utterance. He had to be very careful of what he said. Here were his friends trying to defend what he said. He needed, therefore, to be very careful about it. And out of that controversy that raged around him then came a much more accurate thinking and uh, enlarged view. I'm going to read a little of some of his statements. It is said, of course, you've heard it, that uh, Whitfield simply didn't understand anything about Calvinism. He merely parroted the views of some of the great men that he met and uh, that there was no depth of understanding to it. Before he ever was among the theologians of America, while on uh, crossing the Atlantic, and I quote a few of these sentences from him, it is sweet to know and preach that Christ justifies the ungodly and that all truly good works are not, not so much as partly the cause, but the effects of our justification. Till convinced of these truths, he says in the letter, you must own free will in man. He says to a friend to whom he is writing, Harvey, who became a great English writer himself later, if you will lay aside all prejudices, read over St. Paul's epistles to the Galatians and the Romans, Read them, he says, and then tell me what you think of this truth. Or again, these quotations, as you'll recognize, could go on at any length. This is my comfort. Or rather, let me preface this with this view. These things were not in any sense mere theological theories to Whitfield. These were part of the very practical things of his everyday Christian life. Here's a statement. This is my comfort. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, saw me from eternity. He gave me being. He called me in time. He has freely justified me through faith in his blood. He has in part sanctified me by his spirit. He will preserve me under everlasting arms till time shall be no more. Oh, the blessedness of these truths. They are indeed gospel. They are tidings of great joy to all that have ears to hear. These bring the creature out of himself. They make him to hang upon the promises and cause his obedience to flow from the principle of love. Here's another writing to Howell Harris, this great uh, Calvinistic uh, Methodist in Wales, man who should be widely known. He said, let us catch fire from each other May there be an emulation among us who shall most debase man and exalt the Lord Jesus. Nothing but the Reformation doctrines can do this. All others leave free will in man and make him at least, in part, a savior to himself. 
My soul comes not thou near the secret of those who teach such things. I know Christ is all in all. Man is nothing. He has a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven. Till God worketh in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. These things are part of the whole of his life. Oh, the excellency. 23, again, I emphasize when he's writing this. Oh, the excellency of the doctrine of election and of the perseverance of the saints. I am persuaded till a man comes to believe and feel these truths. He cannot come out of himself. When he is convinced of these and assured of the application of them to his own heart, then he walks by faith indeed. And it is love, not fear, that constrains him to obedience. Again, alas, what would become of me was I to be saved by anything within myself? Blessed be God, the Lord Jesus is my whole righteousness. By virtue of that, I know I am justified. I shall be sanctified. I assured I shall be everlastingly redeemed. God loved me with an everlasting love. In the practical sense, he found these truths his support in trial. I have a word later about some of the trials he endured. He says, may he enlighten me more and more to know the mystery of his electing soul-transforming love. Nothing like that to support us under present and all future trials. The Lord has apprehended us and will not let us go. Men and devils may do their worst. Jesus will suffer nothing to pluck us out of his almighty hand. It is the doctrine of election. Listen to this. The life of zeal. It is the doctrine of election that mostly presses me to abound in good works. I am made willing to suffer all things for the elect's sake. This makes me preach with comfort because I know that salvation does not depend on man's free will, but the Lord makes men willing in the day of his power, and he can make use of me to bring some of his elect home where and when he pleases. Time says I must pass by a lot of these quotations from him as to this Calvinistic stand that he took, and I think an evidence of his understanding, his application of these to everyday life. For these principles he was willing to part with his dearest friends. Brother Murray pub uh, published in the Whitfield Journal, of which I hope all of you have a copy, in that... Uh, publication Mr. Murray published, uh, Whitfield's reply to Wesley. Wesley preached a sermon against election, and Whitfield begged him not to circulate it. When Wesley finally did, Whitfield wrote a reply. I have extensive collect, uh, uh, statements from it. I'd better not take time to read them. I summarize them, however, by saying, for these things he was willing to part company with the Wesley, he gave in that letter statements as to his cause for preaching election. He stated the joining together necessarily of the doctrine of reprobation and uh, election. Wesley had argued that the doctrine of predestination destroyed all assurance and stated that his kind of views had the only real assurance, although, said Wesley, it's just for the past 
for today, nothing for tomorrow. And Whitfield went on to state, the doctrine of election is the Christian's anchor of hope. It is his guide when he walks in darkness. In such a time to have respect unto God's everlasting covenant, to throw himself upon the free, distinguishing love of God, which changeth not, will make him lift up the feeble hands and strengthen the feeble knees. I must make this one quotation from him. Blessed be God, our Lord knew for whom he died. There was an eternal compact between the Father and the Son. A certain number was then given him as the purchase and reward of his obedience and his death. For these he prayed in John 17, and not for the world. For these and these only he is now interceding. And with their salvation, he will be fully satisfied. Finally, in that regard, in preaching, let a man go to the grammar school of faith and repentance before he goes to the university of uh, election. Much more could be said concerning his Calvinistic views. Are these sufficient to show they were as he said, wrapped around every fiber of my being. He said to Wesley, not John Calvin, but Jesus Christ and his apostles taught me the doctrine that I hold. These I learned from God. It was these doctrines that gave birth to Whitfield's evangelism. Tell them, if ever since the days of the apostles has there been a life of such evangelism as his, and it was these truths that created this evangelistic life. Because of these, he overcame his early reticence. People that look upon the works of Whitfield speak of him as overconfident and bumptious. Get into his life and you find there was a backward, retiring, reticent young man. And it was only out of these great convictions that in fear and trembling, he went out to preach. Even in the great open-air meetings, when he stood before his thousands, and he seemed to be the essence of self-control, before those meetings, he was almost overcome with his lack of confidence of self. And only in this sense of confidence in God and that he must declare these truths. Only in that did he go forth unto this great work. Because of these truths, he was given the grace to overcome his trials. You've got some trials, you preachers. And I've got some trials. And some people look upon the great famous ones and think, well, they don't have the troubles I have. Some pastor said to me, well, he didn't have a church to pastor. You realize he had two of the largest churches in England. Outside of the Church of England, his were the two largest buildings. Not one, but two. In two sections of England, uh, 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 London, that he was uh, pastor of. Besides all this evangelistic work, he had trials. Trials in that orphan house he built in Georgia that weighed him down with death. Oh, some of the amazing uh, endurance of this man in the face of these trials all his life long saying I long for the day when I shall know, owe no man anything but love and it was two years before he died before he got out of bed 
And all those years under that burden, he was under the burden of sickness. During his evangelistic tour of America when he was 24, from Georgia up through Philadelphia and then up through the Boston and north of life and back again, during those days he suffered tremendously from sickness. There were times when, uh, after one of his great open-air meetings, his friends would pick him up and stretch him out on three chairs, and he'd be lying there and often uh, vomiting blood. Then one of them would tell him, a crowd is gathering so many miles away, and they'd literally pick him up and put him on his horse. And so he'd ride, ride to where the other crowd had gathered, perhaps a ride of 10 or 15 miles. And they said that as he stood viewing the crowd, he was seemingly a dying man until he walked up to the scaffold, as they called it, the platform business they built for him. And when he stood there with the sight of the crowd, the responsibility that was his to declare the word, the realization of these truths from God, then strength came back into him. The first moment or two, the voice was weak, and with the passing of a minute, perhaps, or two, gradually the voice became strong until again, this was the great mighty man of tremendous vigor, preaching perhaps to 10,000 out there in the fields, and when it was finished again, exhausted and vomiting and weary. Let me read. I must take time to read this little note. When he arrived in America on his third journey out here, uh, he reached New York this time very sick. Nevertheless, he began to preach. After... Uh, Two or three days of preaching, he was taken much worse, and he says that every one of his friends then thought he was dying. What gave me most concern was that notice had been given that I was to preach. No uh, uh, advertising, simply word of mouth was spread around that's all we needed to gather the crowd. Whilst the doctor was preparing uh, medicine for me, I all of a sudden cried out, Doctor, my pains are abated. With the help of God, I will go and preach and then come home and die. In my own apprehension, I had, in all, and in the appearance of others, I was a dying man. I preached. The people heard me as such. The invisible realities of another world lay open to my view, expecting to stretch into eternity and be with my master before the morning. I spoke with peculiar uh, energy. Such effects followed that word I thought it worth dying for a thousand times. At my return home, I thought I was dying indeed. I was laid on a bed upon the ground near the fire. I heard my friends say he is gone. God was pleased to order it otherwise. As I gradually recovered, a poor Negro woman came to the door demanding to see me. She came, sat on the ground, and looked into my face and said, Master, you just go to heaven's gate. Jesus Christ said, get you down. You must not come here yet. First, go and call some poor, more poor Negroes to salvation. I prayed to the Lord if I was to live, this might be the event. Whitfield's doctrine overcame files in his life, made him this mighty man. It made this ministry of great zeal. This was an holy man. You think of the holy men men to whom you attach that term. And George Whitfield must be numbered among them, among the foremost of them, and only as we enter into some of the secrets of his life 
The man who said with the name of Whitfield Parish, Jesus be glorified. The man who refused to build anything around himself, even though he might have done so, if only Christ to be glorified. This uh, was the development of these doctrines that he held. His life of zeal. From the age of 22 till he died at 55, he preached almost every day, often twice a day, sometimes three times in a day. There were times when he preached five times in a day, sometimes seven. For he to speak to this company, to you ministers and to me, we would feel terribly upbraided and guilty by the amount of preaching we do. Any kind of mere ministering on a Sunday and once or twice during the week was to him uh, utterly contrary to all the things we believe. Preaching must be done all the time. The best preparation for preaching on Sunday says is to preach every day in the week. <laughs> he dealt with crowds. I weigh up the statements about the crowds. I take his figures. I take the figures of others who reported on them. Ben Franklin heard them in Philadelphia and walked backwards. You probably have all read this. And imagine the semicircle and figures that between 20 and 30,000 could hear them. And others in England spoke of light figures. Here was a man who at the age of 24, from then to his death, was dealing with vast crowds. And uh, at the age of 24, he figured sometimes 60 and 80,000. We cut that down to 30 and 40,000. Still here is tremendous work of gathering great audiences and uh, declaring the word of the Lord to them. Following his death at 55, Henry Venn, an outstanding English clergyman, said, What a sign and wonder was this man in the greatness of his labors. We cut that down to 30 and 40,000. Still here is tremendous work of gathering great audiences and declaring the word of the Lord to them. Following his death at 55, Henry Venn, an outstanding English clergyman, said, What a sign and wonder was this man in the greatness of his labors. One can but stand amazed that his mortal frame could, for the space of 30 years, sustain the weight of them. Who would think it possible that, beginning a little above the age of manhood, he would, listen to this, he would be able to speak in the compass of a single week, and that for years, in general, 40 hours, and in many weeks, 60 hours. That's actual preaching time. 40 to 60 hours a week, and that's a thousand. And that after this labor, instead of taking any rest, should be offering up prayers and intercessions, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in every house to which he went. History of the Christian Church, says then, offers very few of any instances of men thus employing their whole strength, as it were, every breath they drew in their sacred task. Whitfield's Calvinism created that tremendous uh, evangelism. Whitfield's doctrine caused him to see the revival as the sovereign work of God. What's revival now? Well, few fellows get together and say, we're going to have a revival. We bring an evangelist, we're going to have a revival. How do you get it? Open oh, a sign on the door, outside the front door, it says revival. And that is about as far as revival goes now, isn't that true? As far as we get, human methods, human planning, 
Human ideas, oh, we ask God to bless our plan. Whitfield saw this work as a work not begun by himself, not begun by the Holy Club, but as a work which God had sovereignly begun and which God was to raise up. He tells of a meeting of some of his himself and his friends, the Wesleys and others, before their division, uh, when uh, Whitfield was the one outstanding personality in this movement. He tells them, gathering together in London and praying, we continued in prayer and fasting till three o'clock in the morning. We parted with a full conviction that God was going to do great things among us. All that we may be in any way instrumental to his glory. Oh, that he would make us vessels pure and holy and meet for the master's use. He saw this movement as God doing it. God is doing and God is going to do great things. We aren't doing it. Oh, that we may be the vessels pure and holy meet for the master's use. Following that time after time when Wesley wanted the ascendancy and wanted the prominence, Whitfield would say, I care not whom God will use in his work, as long as Jesus Christ is uh, glorified. Many of God's children are too apt to confine him to this or that particular way of working, he once wrote, whereas God is a sovereign agent, his sacred spirit bloweth where and when and how he will. And when an uncommon work is to be done, no doubt he will work upon his chosen instruments in an uncommon way. What the events of this present awakening, he said, will be, I do not know. I simply desire to follow my Lord blindfold, whithersoever he is pleased to lead me, and to do just what he would have me do, just so much as providence points out. And we could draw many, many similar quotations as he saw God as the sovereign of this great awakening that was granted in those years. Whitfield's doctrinal position shaped his ministry. It formed its doctrinal content. I'm sure many of you have read uh, suggestions concerning Whitfield's ministry. Oh, well, they say the sermon, some say hardly worth reading. They had glanced at them. They didn't find in them what they thought. Matthew Henry is brought. Solid doctrinal content, and from his earliest days was preaching on uh, justification, on the security of the believer, these things from the uh, earliest days of his preaching. Dr. Ryle said, Perhaps few men ever gave their hearers so much wheat and so little chaff. A late professor of Harvard said uh, Whitfield to the effect that few hearers ever gave their, a few preachers ever gave their hearers so much chaff and so little wheat. I wrote him about ten pages of quotations from outstanding men who heard Whitfield in his day. And he wrote me back, Dear Mr. Cotton. He didn't even know my name. He got my address instead. Dear Mr. Cottom, uh, I'm still not convinced at all. You may think what you want, and uh, I still have my own um, opinion. Uh, Dr. Ryle, Bishop Ryle, looked into the sermons. Few men perhaps ever gave their hearers so much wheat 
and to little chaps. He did not get up to talk about his party, his cause, or his office. He was perpetually telling you about your sins, your heart, and your need of repentance. Whitfield made an appeal to the mind. Again, there's a suggestion this was kind of hysterical, something that all the hearers all worked up till they couldn't think in the great wave of emotionalism. I must say in passing, that was true of John Wesley in the early years, the early months of his outdoor ministry. You read his journal, volume two, up to the end of uh, September 1739, and you'll read a tremendous amount of that kind of thing, and Wesley looked for and sought to provoke that kind of emotionalism. Whitfield wrote him and begged him not to create that kind of thing. Whitfield sought first an appeal to the mind, and through reaching the intellect, then in turn the whole of the person. John Foster, English essayist, Baptist preacher. Foster found out he couldn't preach, so he gave himself over to writing. did a tremendous job at his writing. But uh, Foster said in one of his essays, Whitfield's preaching had the effect of giving his ideas a distinct and matchlessly vivid uh, announcement, insomuch that half-barbarous men often seemed in a way which amazed themselves to understand Christian truths on their first hearing of them. Some of them might have heard as unmeaning sounds, similar ideas expressed in the church service, but in Whitfield's preaching, they seemed to strike on their minds in fire and light. What was he preaching? What was this clarity of utterance that he sought uh, to bring to the intellect of these people, these great doctrines of the Word of God, Calvinistic truth, simplified, plainly put, but nevertheless, these great truths brought to his hearers. This created his appeal to the heart. This was no mere setting forth, this is a theory and wonderfully logical and we work it all out and here it is, take it or leave it. But oh, this was an appeal unto the heart of the hearers. Cornelius Winter, who traveled with him during the last two years of Whitfield's life, Oh, why didn't Winter write up the thing properly? He, knowing him as he did, could have done a marvelous job of letting us understand this man. But he wrote a series of letters about him, and from them we uh, gleaned some facts. He said, I never hardly knew Mr. Whitfield to go to a sermon without weeping. He would say to his audience, you will not weep for your sins. I must weep for you. He said there'd be times when Whitfield in preaching would be overcome uh, with his weeping till he'd fall on his knees and be there perhaps for some moment till nature could sufficiently assert itself till he could rise and begin to preach again. Whitfield didn't only preach, uh, uh, cry, weep in public, but all oh, Whitfield wept in private. He would say to some of his friends, some of the young ministers, he said, I got this sermon from God while you were asleep three or four in the morning awake and alone with God in tears over the lost and learning a fresh message out of God's word to declare unto them. I want to take this moment to read a word or two from one of his sermons. This could go on, of course, you'll recognize as we start reading Whitfield's sermons, uh, but even just the closing appeal 
I'm sure all of you know Spurgeon's appeal. If you read the closing two pages and all the applications, here's Whitfield. You can imagine with this crowd out in the field. Here he stands on some kind of little pulpit they've made, and he's subdued uh, the noise, the hush that's come over them. Perhaps a weeping has spread over the whole of this vast, perhaps 10,000 people. Here is a closing word from one of his sermons. When Joseph was called out of the prison house to Pharaoh's court, we are told he stayed some time to prepare himself. But sinner, do you come to Jesus Christ with all your prison clothes upon you? Come, poor, miserable, blind, naked, come as you are. God will receive you with open arms. Oh, let there be joy in heaven over some of you believing. Let me not go back to my master and say, Lord, they will not believe my report. Oh, he said, I am willing to go to prison or death for you, but I am not willing to go to heaven without you. The love of Christ constrains me to lift up my voice like a trumpet. My heart is full. Out of the abundance of the love which I have for your precious soul, my mouth now speaketh. Why should I despair of any of you? Oh, no, I despair of none when I consider that Jesus Christ had mercy on such a wretch as I. Whatever you may think of yourself, I know that I, by nature, am half a devil and half a beast. The free grace of Christ prevented me. He saw me in my blood. He passed by. He said, live. The same grace which was sufficient for me is sufficient for you also. Come then, my guilty brethren, come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who bought you with his precious blood. Look up by faith, see him whom you have pierced. Behold him bleeding, dying. Behold him with arms stretched out to receive you. That's only one of the many sermons which we could quote that indicate his pleading, his beseeching, his invitation of sinners to come to Christ. I want, however, before I close, to get down to a very practical matter. How did he deal with the individual? Whitfield did not make any appeal for individuals to make public professions of receiving Christ or of seeking Christ. He preached sermons closed with an appeal such as this which I have read. By the way, this application comes all the way through the sermon. He didn't leave the application just for the last minute. But all the way through there's the application leading on to this culmination uh, such as the one I've read. Then he left that word preached to become effectual in the heart by the working of the Holy Spirit there. Now he looked for, he fully expected a work and a tremendous work by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his hearers. There was no casual, carefree, take it or leave it. And he did expect results. He preached for a verdict, to use that word. Let me read this is what he expects. He wrote uh, in a letter. By the way, we are from his letters that we find the knowledge of him throughout most of his life. The sermons were largely those, out of 80 sermons or so published, 
uh, 60 to 70 were those which he preached before he was 25. How would you like to be judged on your work when you're 23 and 24? And when people criticize Whitfield's sermons, let them realize they're dealing with the sermons. Uh, they're nearly all the works of the youth. He wrote his journals. Uh, largely, they cover up till he was 25. And he made some mistakes, some big errors of judgment, etc., in those early years. Then in the letters alone, from them alone we glean all these after years of his life. There's much about him that will never be known. Nevertheless, here in one letter, write to a friend, it is very possible for the heart to have much joy floating on top of it, and yet to be as hard as the nether uh, millstone. Hence it is that so many who boast of their flashes of joy are self-willed, impatient of reproof, despisers of others in a mourning state, and wise in their own conceit. Whereas <clears throat> the believer who has truly been with the Lord in the wilderness and has received from him a truly broken and contrite heart, though his joy may not be so extravagant as the other, yet it is substantial. Because of this lax as Whitfield, I shall not be surprised if many who seemingly begin in the spirit do end in the flesh. How can they possibly stand who never felt themselves condemned criminals? I wonder if the people in my church ever felt themselves condemned criminals. I wonder about your hearers. How can they stand who never felt themselves condemned criminals, who were never truly burdened with a sense not only of their actual sin, but of their original sin, especially that damning sin of unbelief, who were never brought to see and to confess with all their hearts but it is only owing to God's sovereign love that they have any hope of being delivered from the wrath to come. The tenants were in America, father and three sons, Presbyterian ministers then. It is for preaching of this kind I like the uh, tenants. They wound deep before they heal. They know there is no promise made but to him that believeth. Therefore, they are careful not to comfort over much those who are only convicted. I fear, says Whitfield, that I have been too incautious in this respect and have often given comfort too soon. How did he deal with the individual? This kind of preaching, these great truths, these overwhelming appeals, for them to come to Jesus Christ and then expecting this work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of his hearers. Now he made differentiation between the awakened and the converted. How easily today anyone who shows the slightest little um, interest in spiritual things, uh, we got the little formula and he goes to the formula and thank God he saved. And here the Word of God says it. I'm sure that we all recognize the prevalence of that here instead. The awakening of the soul unto a sense of its need. And now to leave him alone with the Spirit of God. For the Spirit of God to continue this work of conviction and to lead this soul uh, to repentance and to give him faith in the Lord Jesus and then to give him assurance 
Individuals, however, in this state of conviction, thought would feel help. They began, of their own selves, without his suggesting it, the practice of writing a note while we preach, saying perhaps on the note something to the effect, uh, we pray for me, telling of their need of repentance, their need of faith, their lack of repentance, their lack of faith, these things, sign their name, and then they passed that note over the heads of the people in front of them until the pilot came up to him as he finished his preaching. Sometimes 300. There was one service when there was a thousand of them. Uh, McChain one time, reading about that thousand notes passed to Whitfield in one service, cried out, Oh, that God would give me a weekend, such as this weekend that Whitfield had in London when the thousand notes were passed. People also sought him for counsel. Now, they began in his early ministry to stop him on the street. And that hold of his coat. They'd be crying out, What must I do to be saved? Alarmed and awakened and aroused. Insomuch that he began the practice of setting aside every Tuesday, from early in the morning, often till very late at night, to deal with them. And they'd be ushered into his presence uh, one by one. All that we could have had tape recording of Whitfield dealing with the individual seeker. I am sure, however, as I read his work, that I understand what he did. He showed them the promises of the Word of God. He made much of the promises of the Gospel. He made much of these great Calvinistic truths to them. But again, no promise to them that now you are saved. He left them thus to receive this assurance from the Lord himself. In turn, many people came to him later telling them that this work had been accomplished in their hearts, that alone with God and on the basis of his promises in his word, they knew they had received the Savior, and rejoicing called him to rejoice with them. Whitfield then said, I never count converts. Only the eternal morning will reveal who the converts really are. When he was crossing the ocean on his second trip out, he had a party of about 11 with him. He called them his family. He was 23. Most of them were older than he was. But shortly after getting on the vessel, he said, I began to inquire into the interior of those who sailed with me. A little later, when they got out on the Atlantic, he said, I gave all on board notice that I intended to speak to them one by one and to see what account they could give of their faith. The following day, or rather he said, then I have ceased not to warn every one of you, says the apostle, I seek to follow in his steps. And from him we have, whenever he had opportunity to be freed from the continual travel and movement when he was with a company at all, this was his practice, to inquire into their interiors, to uh, see concerning this profession of faith which uh, they had made. To summarize it, to haste to the hurried conclusion that we heard about from our brother in that grand message an hour or so ago, uh, the effect of Whitfield's evangelism is evangelism, is a Calvinism evangelistic? What is its effect historically? What has been the effect of it? The 18th 
century revival, transformed England, remade Wales, America that had by that time vastly subsided from the doctrines and practices of the founding fathers, the pilgrims, the Puritans. America was reborn in the 18th century revival, the Great Awakening, use what term we will of it. Whitfield saw transformed lives wherever he went, from the coal miners in Kingswood in England when he spoke of the furrows their tears made as they coursed down their blackened cheeks, all across the whole of the English-speaking world that he traversed, he saw transformed lives. When he came to America, after having been in America three years earlier, he came back again. Wherever he went, men and women met him to tell him that they'd been converted and were now living the new life in Christ, converted under his previous ministry. He met many and many a man in the ministry. I wanted to start making a list of all these men in the ministry. Uh, God used him to lead them to Christ. God led them on out into his work. The Kirk of Scotland was revived, uh, re remade. Uh, Scotland entered into a whole new era of Christianity uh, following the revivals under Whitfield there. Whitfield did not build a denomination. He could have. Someone says he had no organizing power. He built the early organizations. Wesley's organizations were patterned after that which Whitfield and Harris built. But when Wesley uh, took over what he could of the work, Whitfield said this will mean setting altar against altar, and he was willing to let Wesley have the prominence and build the work. Whitfield worked with the denominations that existed then. The evangelical school within the Church of England if not beginning then, at least was greatly revived and rebuilt under his ministry. Baptists in America were very few and feeble when Whitfield's work began, and when after the passage of 30 years, Whitfield's death came, Baptists were spreading in tremendous uh, growth all across uh, this land, the land of that day. The Congregationalists, the Presbyterians of America were divided into evangelicals and others under his ministry, but the evangelical movement of these denominations had its tremendous growth stemming from that movement. The only Arminian part of the 18th century revival was that which was built around John Wesley in England and the small work that Wesley did in North Ireland. We don't want to minimize Wesley's work in England or the greatness of the man. We do well to get this historically correct, however, out of this work that touched the whole English-speaking world of the time. The only Arminian section was that under Wesley in England, late in his life, he sent two of his preachers out to America as they harvested, as Wesley says, some of the results of Whitfield's preaching out here. From these Christians uh, throughout the whole of this movement, a new life radiated out into society that remade England, transformed the nation, and then spread out in the missionary movements that followed, 
the Bible Society and all manner of missionary societies in the whole of the, uh, this needy earth. I've got to bring my word to a conclusion. Charles Wesley following Whitfield's death, and there was a wonderful love between Charles and Whitfield throughout their day. Charles wrote a lengthy poem. I wish it were known. But Murray, I feel it's one thing we should publish. The whole of this uh, elegy on Whitfield, marvelous description of him and his ministry from the man who knew him best. But Charles closed by saying, following Whitfield's death, Oh, had he dropped his mantle in his flight, Oh, might his spirit on all prophets light, But vain this hope of miracles to come, There's no Elijah in Elijah's room, Yet, lo, the Lord our God forever lives, And daily by his word the dead revive, His spirit's not restrained but striving still, Carrying on his work by whom he will, he wills us in dear Whitfield's steps to tread, and called and quickened by that seeking dead, we trace his shining pattern from afar. We, his old associates in the glorious war, resolved to use the utmost strength bestowed, like him to spend and to be spent for God by holy violence, seize the crown so nigh, fight the good fight, our threefold foe deny, and more than conquerors in the harness die.